Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for the, the privilege that it is to study your word and to teach your word. That I might study it in preparation to teach, Father, is a blessing for me. And that I might have the, the blessing of the Spirit's revelation in the course of my study so that I share that with others is a blessing as well. I thank you for the men and women who've gathered tonight to learn. I pray that each heart in here, everyone who hears, whether in this room or elsewhere, is moved by the Spirit to understand and live out what's revealed to them through the Word. And that in the days we live and the times we occupy, Father, our hearts would be turned to the urgency of these things so that the world that's out there that does not know these things yet desperately needs to know them might be influenced by some measure in what we can offer them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, friends, welcome to a new verse-by-verse ministry study through the book of Revelation. And this is probably, or maybe easily, the most challenging book of the Bible to study. And as I begin it tonight, I'm sure it won't surprise you to have me tell you that we have to approach our study of this book carefully. Every book of Scripture you want to study carefully. There's no book you don't want to study carefully. And we want to do it with systematic interpretation, careful observation, and the like. But when you get to the book of Revelation, the rigor requirements go up another level in my estimation. And the book of Revelation is such that it stirs up so much controversy at times, and I think it's because people don't study it necessarily with that rigor in mind. And when you hear about all the different different opinions out there about what the book means, what it says, if you're like most, you start to shrink back from a study of it because your thought is, if so many learned people can't understand it, who am I to get into it and understand it? And I don't really want to get involved in an argument. And I don't really want to have all the people around me debating what's true and what's not true. And so as a result, we may never get into the book at all. Well, let me tell you that those conflicting opinions and all the controversy that surrounds it is simply proof that the enemy does not want you to study this book. I will tell you that whenever I have chosen to teach this book, and the five times now that I've done it in my career, inevitably, in the months, weeks leading up to it, all hell breaks loose. And I'm not using that metaphorically. The level of attack is unbelievable when I announce that I'm going to do this book. It's not a coincidence. And I think it goes the other way, too. Many who say, they, oh, I'm going to go study that book. All of a sudden, things happen. I assure you, there's somebody who's going to be here tonight, and their car broke down. And you can see the devil everywhere if you're not careful. But what I'm saying is this. There's a reason why this book makes somebody, so many people nervous or creates so much dissension or makes life in the church seem uh, uncomfortable. It's because the enemy knows that if you actually sat down and studied it, it would change your life, change your walk as a Christian, open up things in your mind you've never given thought to. And as we see tonight, the Lord gave us this book so that we would understand it and understand it well. Our God is not a God of confusion, the Bible says, and that means we should approach this book with the expectation that we can and will understand it. But at the same time, let's also acknowledge that the Lord expects us to approach this book with proper preparation and care and with due diligence. And to explore what I mean, let me give you a simple analogy. I want you to imagine that you go to a bookstore, not that those exist anymore, but let's say you go to a bookstore and you just select some large novel off the shelf. You've never read it before. You pull it off the shelf, you open it up, and you go to the last chapter in that novel and you start reading it. I want to ask you, how much of the action in that novel would you follow? Would you be able to understand if that's what you did? 
right? Wouldn't you be thoroughly confused by what you found in that final chapter? Moreover, wouldn't you expect to be confused if you choose to go with the book that way? Well, of course you would, which is why you'd never dream of doing that if you wanted to understand the book. So how is it that you might open up a Bible, or somebody might do this, and choose to go to the last book of the Bible first and expect to understand it? Because in effect, the Bible that we have is much like a novel, at least in this sense, that it has 66 chapters, or we call them books. But it has one author, and that author hasn't just written them all. He actually laid them out in the order that we have. Every human act that led to the production of this book came about under divine providence, and not by chance. And as such, it's saying something to us that he put this book at the end. What it's saying, among other things, is study the other 65 before you try this one. Because the characters, the setting, the events, the imagery, the plot lines, all of the details that make up the storyline of Revelation are a summation of everything that came before it. So, as you study the book, proper uh, preparation in this case means knowing a good deal about what's in the other 65 books of the Bible. But now I doubt most of us have done that background, and I'm not saying you necessarily should have, but it does raise a question. How are we going to get through this study if in the room we aren't all equally experts in the other 65 books of the Bible? Well, that's where I come in. And I say that with all humility. My job is to give you the background that you need as we move through this book so that you can understand what it's saying based on what the rest of the Bible tells us. And I've heard people actually describe my Revelation study as a study of the whole Bible, masquerading as a study of Revelation. But I don't know any other way to do it. Because, you know, there's too much in this book that's dependent on, the, on what came before it. So that's how we're going to do it. So that's the first thing to understand is there's a lot of cross-referencing that happens in this book. Second thing you need to understand is that there are rules of interpretation, and we're going to follow them. <laughs> because if you don't, then you've just gone off-roading on your own, and at that point, you're your own worst enemy. Rules, uh, rules of interpretation I'm talking, rules are there to protect us against ourselves, against our own imagination, or biases, or blind spots. And I'm not going to give you a lot of them tonight, but I want to give you two rules that we're going to follow, both of which come into play tonight. Uh, And before I give you the two rules, let me tell you what we're not going to do, which I think is unfortunately common when you study prophecy and particularly Revelation. We're not going to make it up as we go. Now, you would look at me like, well, of course not. But you would be surprised, maybe, at how many people try to teach this book purely through speculation. They just imagine what they think it means. They just look at the details. They go, I think that means this. You know, if any other area of study worked that way, can you imagine? Two plus two. Ah, I think it means seven. You know, Columbus discovered America. I think it was last year. In other words, we don't think about any other area, any other discipline with that kind of of speculation. But when it comes to biblical interpretation, it's fair game, right? Anybody who has an opinion has an equally valid reason to speak up and tell you what they think. If that's how we found truth, we'd know nothing. There are rules of interpretation. There are ways you go at looking at the book that are right. And there are ways of looking at the text that are wrong. And you don't want to do the wrong ones because you end up in the wrong place. So we're going to follow basic rules of interpretation. And when we find that our rules of interpretation do not answer a question that we need answered, that is to say when we don't get an answer of something we need, you know what we're going to do? We're going to say, I don't know. And we're going to move on. Because... It's self-evident at that point that the Lord has chosen not to let us know. That that is to say, he's not made it clear. And that means we have something to come back on, and that's just the way it works when you study the Bible. You don't get to know it all the first time you read it. That's not how the Lord works. 
But if you're not ready to do that, here's what you might do instead. You might fill that gap of knowledge with your own thinking because you just don't want to leave a gap open. Two problems with doing that. The first problem is you didn't learn anything. You just speculated. But secondly, when and if the Lord does one day decide to give you that answer that you were waiting for, when it comes, do you know what you're going to do? You're not going to listen because you've already got your answer because you gave it to yourself in that earlier moment. That's how you end up with 50 people who have 50 different opinions of Revelation. Because they filled gaps with their own understanding from wherever. And then when the truth did show up, they weren't ready to change their mind. All right, so we want to avoid that problem. We can avoid it simply by following rules of interpretation and being willing to be uh, without an answer sometimes if necessary. So what are the guidelines we want to follow in interpreting Revelation? And really for any Bible study. Well, I said I'm going to give you two. These are two rules that anyone who's doing a historical grammatical hermeneutic, which is a fancy way of saying a proper methodical way of interpreting Scripture, they would use these methods. The first is the golden rule. Hopefully you've heard of this somewhere. The golden rule of interpretation says, when the plain sense of the text makes common sense, seek no other sense. Just stop there. Because you don't want to go searching for mysterious meanings, deeper subtexts, something more exciting than just what it says. Because when you do that, you've started speculating. And we don't want to do that. So we're not going to run wild saying, oh, this is what it might mean. No, we're going to be constrained by the text and say this is what it does say, and therefore what the author did mean, and we're going to leave it at that. And we're going to interpret the text using every word at its ordinary, usual meaning, unless the text tells us to do something else with it. Unless the context tells us that there's some other way in which we need to be seeing what's said on the page. And, you know, sometimes when you do that, use the, the plain sense of the text and just let it go, it will say things that will blow your mind. And because it does, you might be tempted to say, well, that can't be true. Be careful with that. There were things that the Bible said could happen thousands of years ago that people said, ah, that could never happen. And yet today, technology has actually made it possible. Where they said it couldn't happen, now we would say it could happen, but it just goes to show the folly of trying to interpret the Bible through a lens of your world. You're supposed to interpret your world through a lens of Scripture. And so we're going to let it say what it says. That's the first rule, the golden rule. By the way, if you follow the golden rule of interpretation, you will stay out of trouble 95% of the time. Second rule is with regard to symbols, and that's so important because of the book and the way this book is structured. Symbols are always going to be interpreted by the Scripture itself. What, what does the dragon mean? Or what does the beast mean? Or what does the angel, the star, the lampstand, the, what do they mean? They'll mean exactly what the text says they mean. We don't have to guess. That's the beauty of it. You'll never, ever need to guess at the meaning of a symbol. Because if the symbol has significance, that is to say, if we're supposed to know what its meaning is, that meaning is in the Bible already somewhere. Did you know that? There's no symbol in the Bible of any importance that's not defined Somewhere in the Bible. And there's a little bit of a rule or structure on how this works. The first place you look for the meaning, that is the interpretation of some symbol, is in the immediate context where the symbol appears. And I'd say half the time, if not more often in the Bible, that's where you'll find it. The first, the verse will say, and then there were the seven mountains on the lady with the horns, and then the next verse will say, and the mountains were this, and the horns are this, and the lady is that. It's like you only had to read one more verse to get your answer. Other times it's not there, though. When you can't find it in the context, what you do is you go backward, not forward. You go backward in Scripture within the same book. 
until you find the answer. And then on rare occasions, it's not in the same book, it's somewhere else in the Bible. But here again, only backward. Now why is it always in the reverse, never forward? Because the Lord knows how you read. He knows you read from front to back. So when he puts a symbol in the Bible, he's defined it at that moment or earlier so that you're not confused. He is not a God of confusion. He wants you to understand what he wrote. What leads us to be confused? In a word, two words, poor scholarship. So we want to do good scholarship here, and you'll see how quickly and easily that clears up confusion. All right, that's all the background I want to give you because you're anxious to get into the book. I know I am. So let's dive into the first chapter. I will be putting the verses of Revelation on the screen as we move through it, but when I cross-reference to other parts of the Bible, I will not be giving you that cross-reference scripture. I'll be reading it, but I won't be showing it. If you have a Bible in front of you, you're welcome to follow along. That's what I'd encourage you to do. Here are the rules of interpretation we just covered. I'm going to put those up for you briefly as we get into the text. So that will be for you to look at online later as well. All right, Revelation 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. We're going to take it in chunks, as I always do. This is the first chunk for the night. The book of Revelation is actually a letter, although it doesn't read much like a letter in the way we see other letters in the New Testament. It has this unique chain of custody that opens it up. Uh, It begins verse 1, as the revelation of Jesus Christ, and the Greek word for revelation there is the word we get apocalypse from, just means to be revealed, something to be revealed. But that's where we get the the term apocalyptic literature. This is a a book of apocalyptic literature. Uh, literature That means it's heavily dependent on symbols and it's speaking about a future events. And there is no other letter in the New Testament that is said to be the direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, you hear that this revelation passes, as I said, through this remarkable chain of custody. It starts with God the Father giving this revelation to Him, meaning Jesus. And then the book goes from Father to Son to the bondservants, it says, so that the bondservants might know something. In fact, notice it says the Son shows this revelation to His bondservants. Now, what is a bondservant? Well, you probably know this. It's a New Testament word for the followers of Jesus, and it literally means a slave. And that's why the scripture talks about us being slaves of Christ. So this is a revelation of Christ coming from the Father, coming to us. But you notice there's a couple of steps more between us and Jesus in this chain of custody. It went from Father to Jesus, then to, it says, his angel. We don't know who this angel is. Angels play a primary role in this letter, as you'll see as we go through it all. Uh, And you're going to see them featuring prominently as messengers. In fact, the word angel literally means messenger in scripture. Finally, the angel, or angels, as we'll see, will communicate this detail to, it says, John. Now, John is the Apostle John here. Uh, Church history tells us that, and so does the text in a minute. And this text does not mention which John it is. You notice it just says to John, and that's more reason, if anything, to conclude that it's the Apostle John. Because, frankly, there was only one John in the early church that was familiar to everybody. So if you're not going to identify yourself any more specifically than saying, I'm John, well then it's understood to be John the Apostle. Now why do we have this elaborate chain of custody to open the letter? Well, first of all, I think God wants to encourage us to trust 
the extraordinary things you're going to read in this, in this document. That this is not some fanciful imagination. You know, somebody didn't just have a bad night, woke up with a dream and wrote it down. There's something real behind all of this. And just as today, the early church was infatuated with the, the second coming of Christ, but they were inundated with false teaching. And the false teachers, with respect to the return of Christ, were saying all kinds of things. Remember, the early church thought he was coming back very quickly at first. And so there was a lot of speculation about, had he come back? Yes, he's already come back. I heard he came back over there. Oh, you know, all the the things of, oh, he's already come back and we missed him. But then there were those on the other side saying, oh, he's never coming back. So there was a lot of speculation and error. And here in this letter, you have a definitive explanation of his return. That's what the purpose of the letter is, frankly, of Christ's return. That is, the circumstances and the events that will lead up to his second coming. That's the purpose of the letter. And to ensure that the church accepted this testimony, while it was already rejecting a bunch of bad ones that were floating around in the church, Jesus gives us this chain of custody all the way to Paul, I mean, sorry, to John, and then to us, so that we'd have some reason to trust its providence. That is where it came from. It's uh, authenticity. Notice in verse 1, there's a really interesting aspect of this, though. In verse 1, Jesus, it says, will show this revelation to his bondservants. By show, what he means is, the details of this letter are not spoken to John. They're not narrated to John. They are simply played in front of him like a movie. So John has the task of recording what he sees to us, that is what is shown to him, he tells us. And in fact, look down at verse 3 where I read, John says this letter is his testimony to what he saw. That is a fascinating detail. And it really explains a lot of the trouble in people trying to interpret this letter. Because what it means is, what it says is, that this letter, the information in this letter was not explained to John. It was simply played in front of him. And so John did not take it upon himself to try to interpret it for us. He just says, that's your problem. Here it is. This is what I saw. You guys figure it out. Or as more appropriately, the Spirit will figure it out as we study it. But that's part of what makes this letter so challenging. It's not narrated. It's shown. So as a result of that methodology, a lot of what's in this letter is clouded in mystery. And rather than explaining what will happen, the book is just asking us to work through it with the Lord. And I think there's a reason behind this. First, it obscures the meaning of the text to anyone beyond who it is intended for. Who is it intended for? Verse 1. Gave to him to show to his bondservants. This is not a written work for the world. I mean, in a general way, the word of God is to be taken to the world as a witness, yes. But the information in this particular book, this, this the book of Revelation, was not written so that the world in, at large would understand things that have nothing to do with them. Or another way to say it is, the events of this book will come to pass upon the world, whether the world knows about it or not. Now, obviously, it can be instructive in the, in the way the Lord may use it to bring a heart to know Him. But that's true for every verse in the whole Bible. That's, that's not just unique to one part of the Bible. Every, I, I was saved in a church listening to a pastor preach on the story of Noah in chapter 6 of Genesis. And not with a gospel presentation necessarily, just the story of Noah. God doesn't need a specific kind of wording to bring someone to faith. The Word of God in its own way does that. What I'm saying though is that the details, the information here is not for the world. That's why it's clouded in this form of description of activity, of a showing rather than of a telling. 
so that the world is not informed as the church will be. And then I think, secondly, it makes this study, the study of Revelation, a bit of a reward. It is a reward to the student or to the believer who sets their mind into studying it based on a knowledge of the rest of the Bible. Think of it as the cherry on the top. You get to know what Revelation is talking about because you are a student of Scripture generally. And as such, it draws you in and it rewards you for the effort. Look in verse 3. John says, Those who read and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things written in it will be blessed by God. You may have heard this, but... This is the only book in the Bible that has a specific promise of blessing to those who would study it. The only one. Now, obviously, studying Scripture is a blessing in general. But there's something beyond that for those who would try to study this book. And it would seem as though the Lord knew that there would be those in the body who would be hesitant to tackle this. And if you're one of those, well, um, thankfully you're here. What the Bible is here to tell you is God knew there might be that hesitation, and so he gave us added incentive. Don't forget to study this book. There's a blessing for it. Notice he does add, though, to heed or to observe the book is part of how you obtain that blessing. And by that I mean there's more than just reading the book involved here. There is a conscious appreciation of what it foretells and, I would add, a looking forward to it, an anticipating of it. But notice also what John does not say, and I love this. John does not say the blessing is for those who understand it. Do you understand it? So to heed it in this context does not mean to understand it so well that you know everything that it's asking of you. That's not what heed means. Uh, What it means more is that you would give it your attention, you would give your heart to it, to whatever level of understanding you might have. That's the distinction. Our our understanding of this book will vary, but the blessing is equally available. And and if you ask me, what is this blessing? I'm not saying it's one kind of blessing at all. I'm saying that in your own walk as a Christian, you will find some substantial, some significant blessing in your life as a Christian that comes out of this study. I know what it was for me. It completely reoriented my life in Bible study. It took me from a casual interest in Bible study to what you see me doing today. This book did that because of what it revealed to me. And, and, and really, for what it did in exciting me, that there could be that kind of information waiting for me in the Bible. I hope that's what you'll experience too. All right, with that opening, let's dive into the introduction of Revelation itself. That begins in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves and releases us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, we start with John. He is the human author of this letter. We knew that earlier, the Apostle John. Uh, but he acts as a sort of secretary here. He takes dictation from Christ via the angels, as we're told, and he prepares it for us. And it says in verse 4 that he's writing it to the seven churches that are in Asia. Asia refers to Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And that reference to the seven churches of Asia, that'll make more sense to you in chapters 2 and 3. But let's just begin with a simple observation on the number, because this will help us kind of get our feet wet 
with what I talked about a moment ago uh, with symbols. It says here that there would be seven churches. Now, numbers feature prominently in the book of Revelation, probably not a surprise to you. And in most cases, the numbers have significance. They have meaning all their own, and it's, it's important to understand their meaning. Now, I am not talking about some kind of silly Bible code thing here where you start taking things and manipulating it and doing weird stuff, and you get a crossword puzzle and you add up the... No, that's somebody who wants to play with the Bible. What I'm saying is, take its ordinary, normal meaning and just understand what it says. That's all we're trying to do here. But he didn't say six churches. He didn't say 12 churches. And we know there were a lot more than seven in the world at that time. So for some reason, God picked the number seven. That's evident. And because he picked it, we ought to ask the question, why? And that's this is just careful observation. And if you look through the way the Bible uses the number seven consistently, every time it shows up, you see it being used over and over again. If you look at how it's used in each of those circumstances, you start to notice that it's being used in a consistent way. And that's where you get its meaning from. Now, we don't have time to go through all that tonight, so I'm going to ask you to take me on on my word with this. But the number seven, when it's used by God to symbolize meaning, it always means perfection or completion. And I've told you all before in here in our church, and, and you may have heard this elsewhere, that you can understand the number seven in God's way of doing things as the number 100% in our way of doing things. So in the Bible, seven just means 100% whenever God uses it in that way. And so what John just said is, I'm sending this to the seven churches, but we know there were a lot more than seven churches, and God wasn't just interested in seven of them. So he's speaking to the entire church. By saying seven, he was saying, here is a letter for 100% of the church. Not just 100% of that day, by the way. 100% of the church throughout the history of time as the church exists on earth, to include us right now. Now you see why it would have been hard for him to give any number at all that could possibly have captured how many churches there would be. He just uses seven symbolically to represent all of us. All right? Notice the greeting John gives us. Now, by the way, those seven Asian churches still have specific significance as well, but we don't get to that until chapters 2 and 3. And then the greeting from John he gives to uh, us, and it comes from, he says, all three members of the Godhead. Notice the Father, who is, was, and is to come, referring to his eternal existence. Uh, By the way, no matter how bad things get in this book, no matter how bad things get on earth, The thing that gives you peace in the midst of that is knowing God is on his throne, he's always been there, he always will be there, and you are his child. So there is nothing that can come against you. If he is for you, what can be against you? Right? Then secondly, he says, the seven spirits before the throne of God. Now the seven spirits refers to the spirit of God. There's only one spirit of God. There's not seven spirits of God. So why did he say seven again? Same answer as before. One, you're saying, wait a minute, how can this not just be one? There's only one spirit. Right, but what does seven mean? 100%. What did we just learn? Take out the word seven and put in 100% and read it again. From 100% of the spirit before the throne of God. The spirit being spirit can be in multiple places at once, right? He can be everywhere at the same time. Could he also choose to be only in one place at a given time? That is to say, by his own desire, could he concentrate himself in only one location? That's what it appears to say. From the Spirit of God before the throne room in his entirety. All right? And then, of course, finally, it's from Jesus, who is called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of earth. If you look at those three descriptions, they refer to the three periods of his ministry, beginning with 
prior to his advent, prior to his uh, incarnation, Jesus was the one who witnessed to the existence of God through the creation and through the word of God. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, Colossians 1.16, For by Christ all things were created, both in the heavens, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. So he witnesses, as it were, to the presence of God the Father by having created everything that we can see, which is our evidence of God the Father. And secondly, after he came to earth in his incarnation, the second term becomes applicable. He is the firstborn of the dead, which is a reference to his resurrection. Before Christ died and resurrected into glory, no one had ever done it. He was the first to do it. Paul says again in Colossians 1.18, He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And then finally, after his second coming to earth, which we all await, Jesus will rule this earth as promised in a day to come. And that's the third and final description of Jesus. So the neat way that John has put this together is the the three moments of Jesus' ministry kind of lined out there for us. And this book is basically a book that tells us how you get from the second of those to the third of those. What set of events... What circumstances transpire to lead us from where he was first born of the dead to the king of all nations on earth? That's what this book is about. While we await that, he says, we are a kingdom of priests. Now, that's often a phrase that confuses people in the church, especially if you came out of a traditional uh, church environment before faith, maybe, uh, some particular religious environment in which priests are a part of that tradition. If that's your background, where they had people with collars calling themselves priests, and you had to you had to go confess your sins to them, or if that's what you remember when you came out of that and you came into a, a, an Orthodox Christian world, you may say to yourself, "Well, I'm glad I'm done with that whole priest thing. No one's between me and Christ. I can I can go straight to the throne now boldly. I don't need any earthly priests anymore." Then you read a phrase like this: "We are a kingdom of priests," and you wonder, "All right, wait a minute. Where are we going with this?" Well, you need to understand what a priest is. What is the job of a priest? A priest is an intercessor, someone who represents a person to a greater power. So Moses was the intercessor for Israel before God. Jesus is our intercessor before the throne for the believer. And we are called a kingdom of priests because we intercede, as it were, but for whom? For the unbelieving world. We are priests to them in the sense that we represent to the unbelieving world the Christ that we know. In the hope that by our representation of him to them, they might come to know him as well. We are a kingdom of priests to the world. Presuming we are taking that role seriously and we are going before them in that role. All right? With that, John now begins to relate his story to you. Now we get into some of the more interesting aspects of this chapter. By the way, we're going to finish this chapter tonight. So put your seatbelt on. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. 
His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. All right, back to the author. John says, I, your brother, your fellow partaker... Uh, obviously, if any other John had been writing this letter, they would have said something to specify who they were. But because it is John the Apostle, he just said, hey, it's John, you know me. More evidence for us that this is the actual John. But even more convincing is what he says about his circumstances. He says he's imprisoned on a Mediterranean island called Patmos, which is out in the, just off the shores of, it's actually closer to Turkey than it is to Greece. And the fact that he's on this island agrees with the early church fathers who report that John was exiled here by the Romans at one point in the first century because of his work in the church, ministering. The city from which he ministered, though, is Ephesus. So Ephesus is right there, if you can see it. So they move him from Ephesus to uh, Patmos, presumably in the hope that it would quiet him down. What, you know, How much harm can an old man do sitting on an island out in the middle of, of the Mediterranean? Well, they weren't counting on Jesus showing up. And neither was John, I should add. And John says that uh, he was on this island, you know, which, tell, which, which raises this question. How did John get what he received from Christ anywhere later? Well, that's where church fathers give us a little history on this. Um, the fathers tell us, when I say church fathers, I mean some of the very earliest leaders in the church post-apostle, which would be second century, basically. And the men who wrote in that day tell us that John wrote this letter very late in the first century, probably in the mid-90s, 90, 95 A.D., which would also tell you that it's the last work of the Bible chronologically. It's not just the last one in your Bible physically. It's literally the last thing that was written, the last prophetic work that God created for our purposes. And John would have had to have been in his 80s by then. That's assuming he was in his late teens when he was with Jesus. That fits because in the Gospels it's evident that John's the youngest. How do we know that? Well, there's one moment that tells us that. At the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, ostensibly, where is Jesus sit, seated and where is John seated? If you know the story, John is leaning against Jesus, and in the way they would recline around the table, they always positioned the youngest next to the most honored. And so that means John was the youngest, but Jesus being the most honored in that table. Which, mathematically, it all works. He couldn't have been very old, because he's still alive at this late stage of the, of the first century. And the early church fathers also tell us that he was put on Patmos by Domitian, the emperor Domitian. And when Domitian died, John was allowed to leave the island and go back to Ephesus. And when he did, he would have carried this letter, we think, with him. And it would have been distributed as it was supposed to be. And then, obviously, we've retained copies of it since then. Anyway, John says, on that day, he was uh, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, in Greek, the phrase reads a little differently. Uh, the word Lord, there's actually an adverb. It's, it would be more like a lordy day. So when you take being in the Spirit on a lordy day, what he's really saying is he was experiencing an especially Spirit-filled time. Maybe he was in prayer. Maybe he was just really alive in the Spirit that day. And it all makes sense because that's the moment in which Jesus appears. It starts with a voice behind him. He says, a voice like a trumpet. Now I want you to imagine you're seated somewhere having a very rich and rewarding spiritual day you're just you're having a moment of meditation and prayer and quiet and you're just feeling centered in the lord and then someone takes a brass horn from behind you and blows it at you that's what he said happened you imagine the startle of that 
which is exactly how he began this experience. And the, the difference here, among many, is that the trumpet actually conveys speech. It's not just a, a noise, it's actually a communication method. Because he says, this voice that sounds like a trumpet speaks to him, and it says you're to write. John hears he has to write a book of what he sees and sends it to the seven churches. Notice again, he is to record what he sees, not what he hears. That's what keeps the book so interesting for us. And to send it to the seven churches, not just to some churches. Again, that's a reference to the 100% of churches. And those churches are named here. Again, we'll get back to that when we get to chapters 2 and 3. It's only at this point that John turns around to see where this voice is coming from. I think it must have taken him a moment or two to you know, get his senses back, back to him. I mean, can you imagine what this would have felt like if you, you were on an island, you're by yourself, you're in some jail cell or something. What would you turn around expecting to see? Here's what I think John must have looked like when he, he turns around, right? He sees this. By the way, I didn't draw this. Um, and there are significant problems with the detail in this, and I'm going to point them out to you. But John says when he turns around, he notices seven lampstands. Now, what's wrong with those lampstands? Yeah, that's what they should look like. Here's one of those examples in which knowing your Bible helps. If the Bible said tall, single branch lampstands, then you draw the picture that's up there. It says nothing like that. It just says lampstand. So where do you go to know what kind of lampstand the Bible means when it says lampstand? Flip, 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 flip back, and you look at the first time the Bible talks about lampstands. Guess where that is? Exodus. Guess what kind of lampstand it talks about? This one. And there's no other mention of any other kind of lampstand anywhere in the Bible. Everywhere that the word lampstand is used after Exodus, it's always in relationship to the menorah. So I'm not saying there can't be other kinds of lampstands. I'm just saying there's no basis on which to assume that this lampstand is different than the ones that are always represented before it in the Bible. You see how rules just give you answers and create guardrails to avoid mistakes. Now, does it matter whether I'm right or wrong about the lamps? No, it doesn't. But I'm using it as an example of why the rules help you. All right, moving on. He says the lampstands aren't the main point, right? Except that there are seven of them. Here's that number again. And you would ask yourself at this point, well, what does a lampstand mean in this context? It's got to have some meaning. Why are they there? What are they trying to tell us? Well, you remember our first rule about interpreting symbols? Where do I go? Go backward. Well, let me, let me just kind of give you a little corollary on that. Backward in the sense of chapters. Backward in the sense of books. Not backward in the sense of in the immediate context. Because it's not unusual for someone to say, there was a lampstand, and then the next verse say, and the lampstand is. That's... That's not violating my backwards rule. My backwards rule has to do more with the idea that you go completely out of the context. And if you have to go out of the context, you go backward. Make sense? All right. In this particular case, the context is really all of chapter 1. The scene of chapter 1. And somewhere in that scene, the answer is actually given. And so we don't have to go very far to find it. Let's wait till we get there, though, because it comes in a few more verses. Back to the main point. You have standing in the middle of those lampstands, Jesus... A figure, and he's clearly the focus. It starts with this description, one like a son of man. Now that's a verse, a phrase rather, that clearly points us back to Jesus because that's a statement we hear used for him at other times. But when you hear someone who is something like a son of man, like the son of man, why not just say, I saw a man? Because he's not exactly a man, which is the whole point. He's like a man, but not exactly like a man. And that's the meaning of this phrase. He looks human to an extent. He has a, a robe, he has feet. 
He has a waist, he has a sash girding his waist, and those are all details of, of human beings, certainly. What do they mean? Well, this again depends more on your knowledge of the Bible than anything, but uh, people of authority wear robes and sashes around them, priests, kings, and the like. Um, to have uh, this you know, human-like representation is a part of how John is uh, allowed to have some comfort in the moment. I mean, not to be completely shocked. And yet, at the same time, we realize as we get deeper into the description, not exactly is more the point. Because his hair is white as wool, like snow, and this isn't just someone who's got gray hair. This is something very different than that. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. This is not stuff you see. I mean, there have been times in my life when I could describe my wife as having eyes like flames of fire. But but that's different. That's not like this. Uh, She's not here. Please don't tell her I said that. Um, Going on, the description says that the feet are like bronze in a furnace. That means glowing hot, glowing red. Voice is like a torrent of water rushing through a canyon. You ever been in a situation like in a flood or a, a, a downpour or something and water's rushing over a waterfall? Ever gone to Niagara Falls? That's the sound of his voice. Right? And his face shines as bright as the sun. Imagine looking directly into the sun. That's what it was like trying to look at his face. That's why I said this drawing doesn't really let you do it, you know, see it exactly, but whatever. All right, so how do I interpret all those rules, or those uh, descriptions, rather? How do we get to a point like that, read it, and then sit back and say, oh, I wonder what all that means? Well, first, glance down the chapter, like I told you. Look at verse 20. We're just going to jump there for a second, because it shows you my point. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, bingo, here's your answer. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. No guessing required. All right, now, as you read that, though, it doesn't really help because now you're wondering, why does he have seven lampstands representing seven churches? Why does he have to hold stars to represent? In other words, you still want to know where's that going. All right, well, just hold on to that. Where you find your answers is by going back in Scripture and finding places where these same ideas are represented and they're explained more deeply. That is... Why are lampstands pictures of the church? Why are stars pictures of angels? Or what does it mean that he has seven angels for the churches? Does that mean we each have a little angel on our shoulder? What does this mean? Well, Hebrews tells us this in one fourteen: Angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Did you know that? There are, the angelic realm exists in large part to render service to the believer. Obviously in a supernatural way, in a spiritual way, ways that we don't necessarily detect. And if you've heard people say, I think an angel was riding with me that day before my car went over the edge and I almost died. And, you know, some of that's just euphemism, but I don't know that it's not always true. But whatever God is using his messengers for, they render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. It's one of the roles of angels. So when he says he has seven stars representing the angels that serve the church, seven means... 100%, all the angels are in his hand serving the church. And what does it suggest to you that they're in his hand? That they're under his authority. That he controls what they do. They obey him. That's what we'd expect. And then the lampstand. Lampstands in scripture are commonly used to represent the illumination of truth reaching into the darkness. And as, you know, even the, the believer's own heart is described that way by Paul, that God has shown the light 
of, of the truth into our hearts and that we would then shine it into the world. You know, Jesus says, shine your light before men. It's the idea that we represent truth in our testimony and it acts like a light into darkness. So the lampstands represent churches. All of them together represent the whole church. What is the mission of the whole church? Based on that short little symbolic description. What would you say it is? Evangelizing is the means to the outcome. The outcome being that we bring light to darkness. Right? Individually, that is bringing hearts to know Christ. But even if you're not saving an individual person through your testimony, you're still representing light to the unbeliever. You know, there's two ways to be a witness. One way is to witness to the purpose of their saving. And other times you're witnessing to the purpose of their condemnation. You don't choose which outcome. That's in God's hands. But I'm saying a witness works both ways. A witness can testify to exonerate and a witness can testify to prosecute and convict. So God decides how our witness is used, but it's out there, and that's the purpose. What about the other details of his appearance, for example? Um, Daniel 7, 9 tells us this, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flame, its wheels were a burning fire. Later in Daniel 10, Four, he says this, On the 24th day of the first month, while I was at the bank of the great river, that is Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold, of Euphaz. Sounds familiar, right? His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet were the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult, or like water rushing. So Daniel sees exactly the same thing John sees. So what, you're, what I'm saying is that the description John gives is perfectly consistent with the Bible's general description of what God looks like in the form of the Son anytime He appears in His supernatural state. Then one more, we go to Isaiah, and Isaiah 11.1 1 says this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. What you're learning there, and I'm I'm moving through this quickly, but I want you to see the example here more than the detail. If I wanted to know what does a belt on a sash on a robe mean, Isaiah just explained it. It's a picture of faithfulness or righteousness. I didn't have to guess. I found it. And what does it mean that there's a sword coming out of his mouth? That was one of the details that was missing in that prior picture. When the, the one I showed you a moment ago of Jesus standing with the lampstands, he didn't have anything coming out of his mouth. But the description in Revelation chapter 1 was a sword coming out of his mouth. The artist overlooked that. Well, Isaiah says that a sword coming out of his mouth is representative of the breath of his lips slaying the wicked. All right, so again, those details in and of themselves don't necessarily become some huge revelation to us in the moment. What I'm showing you, though, is the method of understanding them is to go back in Scripture Find where it's been given, understand it there, and carry it forward into what we're learning now. We do not guess at what we think it means. There's no need. It's already there. 
All right, so we have all of these descriptions of Jesus that tell us something about him and his power, his might, his purpose, his righteousness. And putting it all together, Jesus' appearance to John then tells us he is glowing white, pure, you know, purified, holy. His robe represents his priesthood, his kingship. His sash is his faithfulness. His eyes of fire are piercing discernment. His face shines like sun. That's the light of the truth. And his glowing bronze feet represent judgment as he tramples out his wrath on those who are unrighteous. Right? This, is, this is the Lord we serve. So we have Christ appearing to John in a form that is consistent with what we see elsewhere. And all of that is interesting, but probably not terribly surprising. What is striking about this is the way John responds to this appearance. Look at verse 17. Kind of backing up here to the two verses I skipped, or the three verses I skipped. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So John, if you can imagine, he's, he's been in his moment of, of prayerful meditation, his lordy day, he swings around, he sees this scene, he tries to describe it. I'd like to turn the camera back, though, onto John for a second. And this is what I imagine. (laughs) may have seen this before. I'm just appropriating what the internet gives me. (laughs) Yeah, so only it's not quite that ecstatic. It's a little more fearful. And I'm going to take this off the screen. Otherwise, I will not have your attention for the next (laughs) 20 minutes. Um, He's he's flabbergasted at what he sees. But it's more than that. He's fearful. John says, as, as he sees this, he falls at Christ's feet. And he says he does it like a dead man. What he means is he's literally scared stiff, right? He's immobilized by the experience. Now, why is that surprising? Well, first of all, it's not uncharacteristic. That is to say, if you go through the Bible and you look at moments when men had these moments with God in some form, like I'll give you one of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 128, as he, as he gets a similar kind of moment. He says, As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. I heard a voice speaking. Daniel, when he sees something like this, he became so frightened, it says in Daniel eight seventeen, I fell on my face. All right? I, and this happens not just to, to when God appears in some form, but angels. Angels appear to people, right? And they'll do the same thing. And I almost feel bad for the angels. I can't seem to have a conversation with anybody without telling them, do not fear, get up. <laughs> I always make a joke that their, their name tags say, hi, I'm Gabriel, do not fear. Because it's just part of the script. Okay, anyway. Why is it surprising in this case? Because it's John. You know, for three years, John walked with Jesus. He euphemistically describes himself as the one Jesus loved, and it's not to mean that he compliments himself. It doesn't mean that. But it's just to emphasize that they had a close relationship. And yet, he's now appeared. This is the first time in 60 years, 60 years, that they have had any kind of appearance, as far as we know. You would expect that reunion would have been joyful, right? Run and hug Jesus. Nope, terrified, falls down, can't move. All right, we've seen this before, and the reason it's happening now is because uh, the time of the Gospels when Jesus walked the earth in the form that he had, where he could be hugged, okay, that was a unique period of history. Think about it. I've just read to you from Ezekiel and from Daniel. They predate the Incarnation. And now you have Revelation, which post-dates, that is, it comes after. So between them, you have this moment when you could hug Jesus, 
But on every other side of it, all we know is that God, the creator of the universe, as he appears to his creation, is awe-inspiring and fear-driving, in a healthy sense of fear, right? Fear of the Lord. And it tells, and, and of course, if you go into other books of the scripture like Ezekiel, which talks about what the times will be like when the kingdom begins. And even later in this book, what you're learning is you won't be hugging Jesus. And I don't mean that to disappoint you. I mean, you don't, if you can hug your God when you see him in his glory, that's not a very powerful God. That's not the God you want to worship. The God that can make everything should at least inspire a little bit of awe in you, right? And it was a unique exception to that rule that God appeared in the form of man. Paul says it this way in Philippians, that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. I mean, the meaning of that well-known passage is that he went from what we see described in Daniel and Ezekiel and from what we now see in Revelation, and for a period of history, he came down as low as you can get. That is, lower than angels, to the point of being like us, but worse than that, he dies on a cross, which the vast majority of humanity will never do. So it's a significant distinction that he took that approach. Now, we only know that moment. That's all we can remember. That's our history. We, we only see him from that point of view, which is why we have paintings of blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus that looks like a movie star hanging on our wall, and we think, I can't wait to get to that guy and just give him a big bear hug, Jesus. I'm sorry. That's not the way you're going to encounter Christ. And I'm not sorry, because if you could encounter him that way, that would be a very disappointing way to meet the creator of the universe. All right? You learn through this chapter... That Jesus is to be worshipped and known for who he is. And even someone like John, who knew him so personally, was awestruck, prone on the ground in the presence of the living God. Though at an earlier time, he responded to him in a different way. And what we learn about the book in general through this chapter is that every chapter in the book of Revelation is a prophetic chapter to some degree. Even this one, which looks back on a past moment, a historic moment, a time in history. How is it still prophetic? Well, it is in the sense that the appearance of Jesus and the description of his appearance here is a view of his way to be seen when we get in in his presence in the future. It's a preview of coming attractions of who Jesus is in the kingdom to come and in our experience when we see him. So it's showing us who we're worshiping in advance. In fact, if you go to Revelation 19, which we'll see obviously later in this book, At the point of Christ's second coming, in that chapter, there's a description of what he looks like at his second coming. I'll give you one guess what he looks like. 19, verse 12, eyes of flame of fire, um, clothed in a robe, uh, comes with a sharp sword in his mouth. Sound familiar? It's exactly the same appearance he gave John. That is how your Lord appears, not as we have known him on earth. Okay? Now, in response to the fear, we're wrapping up here. Jesus responds, you don't need to fear me, John. He says, do not be afraid. But then he describes himself so that John knows who he's looking at. It's me, John. But notice he doesn't say it's me, Jesus. What does he say? It's me, the first and the last, right? The one who is dead and is now alive forever. In other words, he doesn't describe himself by his temporal identity. He he, He describes himself by his eternal characteristics. He was God before he was man. And he remains God even after his death and resurrection. So his eternal identity is what we celebrate. Even as we 
thank him for his time on earth dying for our sins. You see what I'm saying? It's not that I'm making one more important than the other. I'm not diminishing his humanity or any such thing. I'm simply saying that when you think of him now and you worship him now, you think of him as he is now in those eternal characteristics. In fact, you know, in Revelation 19, it also says this. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Do you know his name is not going to be Jesus or Yeshua in the kingdom? That was his earthly name for us now. But there is a name that will be his name that we don't even know yet. Which is fine. He can have any name he wants. Right? All right. Let's end tonight. And we're going to run a few minutes over the normal 8 o'clock stop. But I gave some extra intro tonight that started us late. So that's all. But it won't take much longer. Let's go to the one verse we haven't covered, which is the last one we do tonight. And it sets up the whole rest of the book. Verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. John is given a task, and his task is to write this letter that we now have, and it comes in three parts. This is the outline of the letter that John is to write. It moves, as you can see, from past tense to present tense to future tense. Write what you saw, write the things that you have seen, in other words, past perfect, and the things which are present, and the things which will take place after these things. Alright? So that may not sound like much of an outline, but it is. Now the first part of this outline is actually very easy to recognize in the letter. Which part of the letter is part one in this outline? Well, at the moment Jesus spoke these words to to John, he said, saw, past tense. So at the moment he's speaking, he's saying, write what has already happened up to this moment. What you saw. What had happened up to the moment that Jesus spoke that sentence. Well, pretty much everything in the scene that we just looked at. So the things of this chapter, effectively, are the things John saw. They are the things that had happened before this moment. Am I I still got everybody in the room? All he was saying is, make sure you tell them where you got this from. Make sure you saw. You tell them you saw me, tell them what I look like, and tell them this came from me. That is, the things you saw. And then, after that, by the way, that's this chapter, right? Guess what? Congratulations, you just finished one-third of the book of Revelation. I mean, we're flying through this book, aren't we? All right. Now, that would tell you that the things that are must be everything that happens after this moment, up to some point. Right? If this is the moment in the line and sand in which he says saw, meaning what has already happened, then by definition, from that moment forward, starts the next section. Which, from our standpoint, the way the book's been divided, that would be chapter 2. So from chapter 2 onward, we now reach into the times that are. Okay, but that just gives us a bit of of concern because this all happened 2,000 years ago, so we might sit here today saying, okay, well now that, that must all have been past tense for us. The things that are must now be the things that were, from our point of view, right? But that's not necessarily true. And in fact, next week, I'm going to show you how it's not true. But in the meantime... We'd like to get the sense of where the next anchor is. In other words, I know that chapter 1 is where the first part ends and the second part begins. Now I'd like to know, okay, where does the second part end and the third part begin? Because that will help me keep straight what I'm looking at in the book, right? That's, that's the whole idea of an outline. So let's talk about this. You have the things that saw, he saw, the things that are, and the things that happen after these things, right? The things that happen after these things, they are the things that happen after are. 
These things refers back to are. So you have the things he saw, the things that are, and then things that will happen after the things that are. That's what he just said to do. It's just confusing for us because we don't know what he's referring to yet. We just know it comes in three chunks. All right. How would I know then when he moves from step from, from the second of those to the third? If I know the first one is chapter one and I know the second one starts in chapter two, how do I know where it ends? Well, again, our God is not a God of confusion. So he must tell me somewhere in the book, right? It must be somewhere in the book. What happens if you go down through the pages of this book looking for that break? You know what? You find it. And you know where you find it? If you look at the very beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, and I'm not going to put it on the screen. You can look at it. We'll get there later. But the very beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, starts with the words, after these things. Yeah, it really is that easy. People told you this book was hard. They were lying. No, it is hard at times. But this is, this is actually proof to you that the God who wrote this wasn't trying to put one over on you. He wanted you to understand it. All right, so what that just told us is, if chapter 4 and onward is, the things that is, is part 3, and there's only three parts, then I go all the way to the end of the book with part 3. That means part 2 is easy to find now, right? Because part 2 is what's between those two. That's, that's simple math. You didn't even have to be a Bible teacher to know that. So we still have a mystery to solve here, many mysteries. We still want to know how these letters to the churches uh, that existed 2,000 years ago could still be relevant to us today. Why are they still the things that are? And I'm going to save all that for next week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a great start to a difficult study. But Father, that's confidence building. We thank you for that, the grace that you've given us in that. But Father, I also pray that as we get excited to learn, and as we see things unveiled to us in this study, that we would uh, temper our enthusiasm and excitement with a sober realization of what we're learning and what it means for the world around us so that it would uh, drive us into a seriousness of purpose as Christians who follow and serve the living God. That the world around us, Father, might condemn us and mock us, embarrass us, reject us because we share things like this with them. But yet, Father, that is how we will help them And we must be ready to do as you call us to do. So I pray, Father, we would not be those who would shrink back, but would have courage and would follow you into the mission that you give us to seek the world as a light into darkness. So convict us of that, even as we learn the wonderful things you have for us in this book. And if it be your will, Father, bring us all back here in a week to come so we may continue. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.